Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. This week on The Research Beat, we speak to Paloma Sangro del Alcazar, Doctor of Internal Medicine at Clinica Universidad de Navarra. Paloma, welcome to The Research Beat. It's a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. Your research is in RNA specifically. Could you start by explaining for our listeners the difference between DNA and RNA? Well, DNA, or the, the genome, is where you have the information from the cell. And this DNA is uh, transcribed into messenger RNA. So RNA is kind of the intermediate step. And after this RNA is uh, translated into proteins, and conventionally proteins have been considered to be the, the, the key of every uh, metabolic reaction and, and to trigger all the cell functions and changes. So RNA is the intermediate step between the DNA and the proteins. So in terms of your specific research, what's the interest in RNA? Well, in particular, what I do is study a part of the messenger RNA, uh, which is non-coding part of the of the messenger RNA, which means that this uh, RNA does not transcribe into proteins. But interestingly, this messenger RNA or this non-coding RNA has a function or has the ability to regulate gene expression or uh, for example, changing the way the DNA is then transcribed into the final messenger RNA or even change the, the function of different proteins. So these non-coding RNAs can change the effect of different metabolic uh, reactions in the end. And what I do specifically is I, I study these low non-coding RNAs in a type of liver cancer, which is called the hepatothelial carcinoma, which is the main liver cancer in the, in, in the world. And what led you personally into the interest in RNA in the first place, and specifically non-coding RNA? Well, I had this chance to start doing some research while doing my residency in internal medicine in, in, in Pamplona, because they, they have their very big liver unit, and they work a lot with a research center, which is called uh, FEMA. And uh, I had the chance to meet a very good uh, researcher, which is called Puri Fortes, and uh, she was um, very interested in, in this non-co part of the, of, the, of the RNA, because if only from, from all the DNA and from all the messenger RNA that we have, only 2% is used for or is transcribed into proteins. So it was, it's, it's very curious that what, what, what does the other part of this RNA, which is non-coding, what, what, what does it does, no? It, it, they, they have some functions or not. So, so that's why I started. It was very interesting for me and, and I had the chance to work with her and that's where all started. So at the beginning, only 2% of the RNA in the human body was understood to have a clear function. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to investigate and see what the rest of this RNA, the 98%, in fact, did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. And what kinds of discoveries have you made so far? 
I mean, the, 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 the important thing is to try to make a difference between healthy tissue and other diseases. So in HCC, what I found it is that there are some long non-coding RNAs that are expressed in healthy liver that when these cells change into tumoral cells and they become malignant, they can overexpress or upregulate some of these long non-coding RNAs. And, and and what you, what we have to think is why do they these tumoral cells use or overexpress these long non-coding? Maybe it's because the function of these long non-coding is of interest for the cell for metastasis or for invasion. So I, I, what I've found is that there is some long non-coding RNAs that are, are upregulated or, or overexpressed in these in these type of cancer. And another very interesting thing that I, I, I discovered is that these cells um, excrete these long non-coding RNAs into blood, uh, which could in the future, after of course more investigation, could be used as, as biomarkers in order to try to diagnose patients earlier. So what you're seeing is a definite response in the non-coding RNA mm -hmm. when you're looking at diseased tissue compared to healthy tissue. Mm -hmm. That's it. Could you give our listeners an outline of an experiment in your laboratory? How would you go about testing this tissue and measuring the effects on the RNA? So the first thing is that you have to select which long non-coding RNAs are of interest, no? because there's a lot of them. So you have to, you take the liver biopsies that we have of some patients, healthy patients, and of course, uh, patients with HCC, with hepatosolar carcinoma. And we take a part of that tissue, we do some sequencing of all the genes, and we then see the difference uh, of, of these genes between the healthy tissue and the tumoral tissue. And, and from all the long non-coding RNAs that have a difference between these two types of tissues, you choose the ones that, of course, are more overexpressed or upregulated. Up Once you have you, you choose which long non-coding are you going to study, of course, what you have to do is you have to validate these results because maybe your population, the population that you're studying in your hospital has some specific genetic features and, 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 the, and, and they express a type of long non-coding RNAs, but maybe in other parts of the world they have a different one. So what we do sometimes, what we normally do is validate these results in public data sets. After in, we, we also performed other different uh, studies, for example, we used uh, mice and we made them have liver cancer with this long non-cutting RNA overexpressed. And we developed a, a drug uh, that um, inhibits this long non-cutting and we, we observe what happens with the cells and we observe that these cells stop growing, for example. And another part of the experiment was to try to, um, with blood samples of, of these patients having a patellar carcinoma before and after a surgical resection of, of the tumor to see if there is any differences of, in these long encoding in blood samples. No? Because if, if, if you find this long encoding RNA before, when, when, the, when the patient has the, the tumor, but then when... when the patient doesn't have the tumor because we've done the, this resection, this surgical resection. Uh, it could also uh, serve as, as, as a biomarker, and 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 we found some differences. That's really interesting. And since we're talking about patients and mm -hmm. those who have tumors, are you ever able to examine 
those real life incidents, those real tumours, or do you always have to work under controlled conditions in the lab with conditions that you've created? artificially no we we i mean the data that we have is is from real patients uh what we all do is we we ask the patient when we diagnose uh, uh, him or her a, a, a tumor and and we're going to perform a surgical resection because it's what's indicated in, in his or her stage we we ask the patient if he wants to donate some of the samples through the surgery to the investigation. And so the data or the, the research that we performed at first is in, in real patients. It is true that we, well, I mean, we use mice at first. And, and of course, the future objective is to try to develop these biomarkers and these drugs to use them in real patients. But of course, that's going to be after a long period of effort and, and, yeah, and the best of time. But maybe in 20 years from now, of course, what I discovered will help other people to develop drugs or biomarkers which, that will help this community, these patients. We've had uh, previous guests talking about the same process of research, that it can be painstaking. It takes mm -hmm. time and it takes patience, as you say, to develop these ideas and then to put them into practice. And you may be working on something that's going to have a really serious effect 20 years down the line. How does that feel as a researcher? <laughs> well, it could be frustrating sometimes. <laughs> uh, but I think that what you, what we think, well, me, especially as, as a clinical practitioner, what you want to do is you want to help your patients and you want to improve the survival of these patients and the quality of life. So what you have to think is, is that it doesn't matter uh, for, I mean, the, the effort that you have to make or, and, and the patient that you have to have, if the objective that you're, um, you have is, is, is a good one, you, you have to keep continuing in, in doing that. And uh, what, what I think is, uh, well, what I, what I learned, is the main thing is, is not only, of course, patience and perseverance, is, is also teamwork. Um, because I had the chance to work with these basics researchers. It's not very common clinical practitioners to work in a lab. And for me, it was very good to, to get to know that part also of the investigations and all the, all the research. Let's focus on that relationship for a moment that you mentioned. You are both a clinical doctor and a researcher. Is this something unusual? I think it's unusual to have a clinical doctor who goes to the lab to perform technically all the experiments and, and to see how the basic research is, is performed. Of course, there's a lot of doctors, uh, clin uh, clinical doctors, that they perform different uh, research and uh, studies and clinical trials. But maybe they use more like, clinical data and they perform statistical things and to obtain some data and then to have some new ideas in order to develop new clinical trials or whatever, but, but basic research and to go to the lab, I, I think that's not very common. But I think it's very good because you, I think you have to understand what they do in order to also to know things you can uh, actually do with your patient or, or if it's possible or not to, to develop this type of drug or this type of other diagnosed um, technique. Absolutely. So has your progress in research giving you additional insight in your clinical practice hmm. yeah for sure yeah because sometimes you think you have a doubt or you, know, you have a question or you want to understand what's happening to your patient and and 
maybe it's easier, it's either easy for you to answer that question and say, okay, yeah, let's do this type of uh, technique to see if this patient has this molecule in, 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 in his blood. But technically, maybe it's not that easy or there's, there's some limitations. So it's very good to know the limits of your clinical practice. Is the reverse true? Does your clinical practice allow you insight into research? Yeah, I think there is no research without clinical practice because I think all the ideas arise from patients. I mean, without patients, of course, research wouldn't exist. Your patient comes with a problem, you want to solve it, you want to understand what's happening with him. And that's where you start asking questions and you want to give an answer to that questions. And then there you go to on research. So, of course, I think it's it's very important. Would it be fair to say that your patients and your clinical practice are your inspiration? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I love what I do. And, and of course, when when a patient comes to you with, with no, with hope and, and with a problem, of course, as, as you will do with a friend, you want to help them as much as you can. And if, if basic research and, and clinical research is going to help them, of course, you will do it. And also because, of course, you, you like it. Absolutely. I would like to ask about the wider community of research. And you mentioned before that you are working on things that maybe somebody will pick up uh, several years later or many years later. Do you have a, a clear feeling that you're part of a bigger community of researchers? Well, I think it depends on the, on the country where you live. Uh, it's true that here in Spain, they uh, done, invest a lot of money in, in research. That's a pity. And, and so sometimes it's, it's very difficult to keep going as a community of researchers because it's, sometimes you don't have no, um, money to keep going and you have to stop and then continue. But, but it, is, it is true that they, there's a feeling us, uh, of course, that that you that you belong to to a community, and it's it's very important. We, we all share our knowledge, and we help each other. Maybe you work, for example, in a specific type of of procedures in in, no, in basic research, but then you need to do something which is different with with proteins or with RNA, or and you talk to another one from another lab to see how they perform their you know, their techniques and and to try to help you. So of course there's a feeling as a community, where sometimes it's, no, you 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 find some difficulties in keep going. One, two, three, four. The research beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers, which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily, on the go and simple to share. Returning to your specific research, do you have a particular aim? Yeah, I mean, of course, I have many. <laughs> uh, but what I would like to, I mean, for me, the key is try to, to diagnose patients earlier. That's my particular interest because what we find, especially when we talk about cancer, the problem is that when you have symptoms, the cancer is spread all around your body and the possibilities to heal are even, I mean, there's no possibility to, to, to heal. So I think the key is to try to identify the 
patients that are at risk of developing cancer and with uh, not doing the screening method trying to diagnose them earlier in order to of course improve the survival of these patients so my aim is try to yeah to to find a, a good biomarker that could help these risk patients to avoid to develop cancer and do you feel that you're getting closer to your goal well i think it's yeah i mean step by step little steps but i think everything that you discover of course it's better than nothing <laughs> so so yeah i mean i i feel confident but sometime i'll get to it and have you seen any of your research translated into real world outcomes at any point in your career um right now no because it's very basic uh, it is true that the experiments that we've done in vivo with mice are very satisfying because you actually see that this, well, this tumor, when you use these inhibited drugs, they stop growing and so this gives you some hope too. But it is true that you have, we have to be very cautious because from, for example, mice are the animals that we use in labs from, uh, I mean, after, to humans, it's, it's different and of course, we we have to be, as I said before, we have to be patient and go step by step and no rush. How would you bridge that gap? Talking about experiments that are taking place in mice, for example, how would you bridge that gap between mice and eventually humans? Well, it's a big process because then you have to show that actually there's these benefits not in, in, in mice without having any secondary effects. And also the biology of mice is different in, 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 in comparing to human beings. So if you want to start after a clinical trial, if you have a, a drug that could, for example, in, in, in this case, be stop the HCC development, you have to first develop the drug with a pharmaceutical and then start some different type of clinical trials first that there is no damage in patients and then that there is some benefits try to identify secondary effects. so it's it's a long it's a long period and for you this is a project of passion so like you said before you're seeing results and when you see results does that give you more inspiration to keep driving forward and keep discovering more and more yeah because sometimes um i mean the, the beautiful thing about research, I think, is that sometimes you discover things that you didn't expect to find. So when that when this happened, you keep going and asking you why. Why I discovered this that I was not expecting. Or maybe what I thought it's wrong and maybe it's different and the cell behaves in a different way that I didn't know before. So I think the, the so this, this keep going and you can ask a lot of different questions each day and then and, and so it's difficult to stop because you always want to know. <laughs> Could you give us an example of something unexpected that you found in your research? Um, for example, I when I did my PhD in this long non-coding RNAs that we were talking before, what I found is that the tumoral cells, the HCC cells, um, excrete an organelle which is called mitochondria, uh, which is an organelle that uh, function, uh, well, allows the cell to breathe and, and to have energy to work. And so that was that's something that I did not expect uh, because 
I thought, why the tumoral cell wants to excrete these mitochondria into the blood? What does the mitochondria not do in, in the blood? Um, so, well, that's another question that right now I'm trying to answer to try. I, I, I would like to start another project trying to identify these mitochondria and, and and trying to validate these results, of course, in other different type of cancers. And, and well, maybe this mitochondria has an, a very uh, an important part or an important role in metastasis, for example, or in, in vascular invasion. So are there any theories on exactly <laughs> what that mitochondria could be doing there? Not actual. I mean, of course, when, when I found that, what, what I did was trying to research in, in well, to, to read all the publications about mitochondria and cancer or not even cancer, mitochondria and other diseases. If, if other uh, researchers have found that these mitochondria uh, are in other diseases. And uh, well, I, I found some few data about this, but it is true that we actually don't know. And what we don't know if, if the cell excretes the mitochondria in pieces or the whole mitochondria uh, complete the complete without being distracted so it's it's very interesting but so far i i, I don't have theory about that i hope i'll i'll find it <laughs> and is it an exciting feeling when you when you come upon something like that yeah of course it's it's very exciting as i said before i think we all have to be very cautious but because of course it's it's i mean it's it's kind of a feeling that what you're doing and all the effort that you're doing on your, on your research, finally, no, there's some there's some light. But it could happen that what I found, because as I said before, I'm studying a specific population, and maybe my patients are different from others, and maybe what I found in my patients is not actually very relevant in all liver uh, cancer patients. So of course, I mean, you you have to keep going and and i mean the, the, that feeling of course of happiness is very good so you mentioned before your research into hepatocellular carcinoma mm -hmm. and that led into research in non-coding rna mm -hmm. and that led to a discovery of the secretion of these organelles the mitochondria and it sounds like that's going to lead you into the future of your research the next steps that you wish to take mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm starting to do, trying to see how I continue my research in, in this mitochondria in liver cancer. Um, what I want to do right now is is to, to see which is the best technique to identify this mitochondria and to try to validate again and to do the same tests that I did in the patients in another type of patients to see if what I found I, I, I keep going I keep I keep finding it or, or or not. But it is true that of course I, I liked also to open other fields always related to liver diseases. And uh, for example, I've started another project in fat liver diseases, um, which also is very it's a very important disease that we are we have right now and we will have in the future due to all the obesity that we have in, in the world. So um, it's good not only to focus maybe in, on one thing and to keep your mind open you know, to, other, to other different type of research. So you're always finding something new to push forward. <laughs> yeah, I try to. <laughs> yeah. Paloma, we always ask our guests to share with us any funny or moving or interesting stories from the world of research. Do you have any to share with us? 
Well, I always tell my residents you know, when they ask me if I recommend them to start this research uh, career or not, that I, I always tell them that I didn't know all the effort and all the dedication that you have to give to research before uh, starting to work in a lab. And uh, it happens once that I had to do some different yeah, techniques in, in the lab. And of course, I've never done them. And, and I thought they were going to be easy. But of course, I used a different reagent and, and I had to repeat it again and again. And, and suddenly I found myself in the research um, uh, a lab all by myself. It was very late night and I was alone and, and, and I, 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 I mean, I was inside the building, I was locked in. Um, and when I realized I, I wanted to get out and then the door would close and, and I had to call security and, and well, it was kind of a, of a mess because they, they had to come to open me and well, so, um, I always tell them this story because, um, I think it's very important that to, to have this, not this patience, uh, and to, to know that you have to spend a lot of time in this and, uh, Although I was, of course, very angry and, and because I was a long time in, in the lab. After you, I mean, you can have some, some good things about it. And of course, you, you have to think about that. That's a nice story. <laughs> Paloma, my final question to you is, if you had unlimited funding, what would you do with it? Well, of course, unfortunately, there's many diseases. And of course, choosing one is difficult. But um, I think I'll keep going with my, of course, with my, my research and in particular with this mitochondria, which maybe I, I find out that there's, it's not important and it's something that is going to be useful for HCC patients. But of course, what I will do is try to, to, to do more research about these, about these organelles, which are, I think, very, very interesting. And in order not only to, to develop drugs that could improve this patient's survival, but also to see and to try to understand more these diseases that we actually don't understand and, and don't know how they, how they behave in our body. Paloma, if our listeners would like to learn more about your research or the hospital where you work, how can they find you? Well, I'm not a very active uh, person on, on social networks, but they, they could always go to the website of my hospital where I work, Clinica Universidad Navarra, and they can email me. It is true that I use, for example, Twitter. I'm not very active, but I follow some other clinical doctors that I think are active and they share um, good knowledge and good uh, tweets about different things in medicine. I follow Jose Luis del Pozo, which is an infectious disease head department of my hospital in Pamplona, and also Dr. Javier Zulueta, which is uh, also a pneumologist who, who is specializing in lung cancer. So I, I recommend those doctors to, to follow on Twitter. Wonderful. Paloma, thank you so much for joining the research beat. Thank you. For more on Paloma, you can reach her on email at psangro at unav.es. And to listen to her academic research in full, sign up to the Ordemic waiting list at ordemic.io or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.